Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us, and now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, as we pray that you will be blessed by the preaching of the truth of God's Word today. Today is a special Sunday for a multitude of reasons. Uh, For one, it's an observance of Memorial Day here at the church, but it's also a time when we honor our graduates and our prayers that God's guidance continues to watch over them, not only the ones that we have in this church, but those across this community, and that He provides them with wisdom so that the freedom that was won for us is put to good use. Today is also Pentecost, the day when we remember with celebration the imparting of the Holy Spirit upon the believers, which is also the birthday of the church. Now, I don't know why this is not taught more readily, but God did not leave this world when Christ ascended to the Father. God, through the person of the Holy Spirit, came to minister, but not through a single person the way that It did through Christ, or He did through Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work today, so God is at work today. And the Holy Spirit is in you. All who are a part of the family of Christ, all who have earnestly repented of their sins and are trusting in Him for salvation, all of them have been imbued with the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore they're all part of the body of Christ because it's the Holy Spirit that makes us the body of Christ. So as the hands and feet of Christ, as the hands that serve, as the feet that go to tell the good news, as the voice who is making God's appeal to a lost and fallen world, let's look now at the characteristics that first made the church the church. I know that it's not listed in your bulletins yet, but just for background, would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading this passage with verse 37. And again, this is by quick review. I want you to picture in your mind the 12 disciples of Christ. Peter, the fisherman, the outspoken one. The person who God the Father gave insight on a couple of occasions, but more often than not, when he started to speak, he did not start to speak with wisdom he started to speak from a sense of pride and a sense of self-importance. In fact, once Jesus himself had to say, Get thee behind me, Satan. Open mouth, insert foot. Ready, fire, aim. That was Peter the disciple. Now let's read about Peter the apostle. He approached the temple and he started preaching. And all of a sudden, the skies opened And what appeared to be tongues of flame descended upon the twelve and rested upon them. This was a visible representation of the Holy Spirit of God coming down and joining with those who were believers, those who were now permanently purged of their sins by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And now dwelling within them, regenerating them, changing them, Peter starts giving an exposition where he walks the people of Jerusalem. And this is Pentecost. This is one of the holy feasts. This was a time ordained since the time of Moses when every able-bodied Jew had to pour into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the harvest and the giving of the law. 
Well, now the law wasn't going to be written on tablets of stone. The law was going to be written where? In their hearts. And this is how it took place. And as he was preaching, as his word shifted from his own wisdom to God's wisdom being poured out through the power of the Spirit, using him as its voice, we hear that he walks from Genesis all the way through the prophets to point to Christ, offering salvation from the Old Testament. He condemns the leaders of the Jews as those who wanted to sacrifice Jesus not for the sake of eternal salvation, but for the sake of their own power. He confronts them with their sense of pride. Save yourself from this generation. Repent and be baptized. And this is how the crowd responds. Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive this very same gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, every Jew that was a Jew and capable of it was flooding into the capital city of Jerusalem, so you weren't just talking about Jews from across Israel. You were talking about those who were all the way over in Babylon, who were scattered around the Arabias, who were in Greece, who were in Rome, who were in Spain. The Jewish population from the diaspora of Babylon are now flooding back, speaking different languages. And it was so bad being separated from their own culture that once in Egypt, Ptolemy IV had to have the Bible translated into Greek just so that everyone would understand it. So now they're flooding in. Hardly any of them actually speak Aramaic, which was the given language of the day. They all spoke either Greek or Latin or Farsi or whatever was going on throughout the rest of Asia Minor at the time. And all of a sudden, they're hearing the Old Testament in not just the Greek, not just the Hebrew, like in the synagogue, but in their own native language. The curse of Babel had been eliminated by the Holy Spirit of God. And through piercing the hearts with His presence, they heard exactly what they needed to hear in a way that had no boundaries, no conditions. All of them had the opportunity now to come to salvation. Now there is neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, for all are now partakers of the self-same gospel. And the Holy Spirit was making that possible even to those who were ordinarily confused by all this. The promise is for you and your children for who are all afar off. For all who the Lord our God will call. Whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord what shall be saved. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about, what does it say? 3,000. One sermon, one invitation. But the people of God were in the presence of the Spirit of God. The people of God were in the presence of the Spirit of God and giving him total reign over their hearts. Three thousand in one message were added to their number that day. A church of 3,000 Jews and Gentiles were born that moment. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Underline this. Because this is the way the Bible describes not only the church of Acts, but the way every church of regenerate Christians is to operate. Underline this in your copy of God's Word right now. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, meaning to the Word of God. They were becoming disciples of the former disciples. To fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So how often did this church meet? Was it just one hour on Sunday morning? Was, were they lucky to get a couple of people here and there on Wednesday night? What about Sunday nights? What was their Sunday night attendance? Let's take a look at this because this is how the Bible defines a church. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Every day. What does it say? Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Every day we hear about them selling their own property and giving it to anyone else that had need. So we had discipleship. We had learning. We had a, a, a rich devotional life as they were sharpening each other, iron sharpening iron through the power of the Word of God in tandem with the Holy Spirit of God. Every day they were being disciplined. Every day they were being taught. Every day they were learning. Every day they were putting what they had learned through the Word of God into practice in the service of God. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes so they had an open door policy with their neighbors. They shared meals together. They had a common life in community. Nowadays, we barely know who lives next door to, much less inviting the other people in the church over for dinner. This is the way the Bible defines a church. They broke bread in their homes and ate together and with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number, how often? Daily, those who were being saved. God had his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. The example of Pentecost is, is thus. Peter starts out his sermon by declaring that we are witnesses to these things. Now, if there were 3,000 converts, then it was a crowd of more than 3,000 people paying attention to it. So in the very place in the lion's den where the people who had shouted to Jesus himself, let his blood be on us and our children. In the very court of the people that called for Jesus to die, they were on the temple steps, publicly bearing witness to the risen Christ saying, we too, we have witnessed these things and continue to follow him. Public profession as witnesses of Christ. That's one of the things that characterized the church. They didn't shut up about their faith, especially in this very public spectacle. They had a broad, a bold proclamation of God's judgment. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Get out of this society because it stands before a very holy God as condemned. Repent and be baptized. This is your hope. There were loud calls to repentance and transformation. Who you are right now isn't good enough. I am a great sinner, but I serve an even greater Savior. Even as Christians, we are called to a process called sanctification, where every moment, every day, every decision, every time that you are in God's Word or every time you're in public, every second that you're at work or every second you're in front of your own children, that's a moment for you to do good for the kingdom. That is something that is shaping you, molding you. Right now, we are not simply put good enough. And if you're outside of Christ, you don't know Christ. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, for I what? 
never knew you. And the most sad, the saddest part about that is that there are people who would consider themselves Christians who he's going to say that to. Loud calls to repentance and transformation. They had a rich devotional and prayer life. There are many of us who want to, to do a lot of work for the kingdom, but don't want to have time for the king. That was the problem with Ephesus in the book of Revelation, the, the letter announced by Jesus Christ himself is penned by the apostle John. You, you've done all this good work for the kingdom, but you've sacrificed your time with the king. You have not gone into the word. You have not gone into devotional time. You have not gone into your prayer closets and closed the door and spent time with your heavenly father. You've, you've been so busy with the soup kitchen. You've been so busy uh, with giving away food. You've been so busy doing the work that you have sacrificed time with the God who continues to mold you. We have to have a devotional life on top of having a service life. We have to have the Word of God in our lives before we can proclaim it, before we can use it, before we can work through it. It is not an either or, it's a both and, and it must be this way. You cannot escape doing the work of the church and doing the, the work of the church. In order to be the person who serves, you have to be the person who learns. They were in constant study and service. They met together as learners, as disciples daily. Constant study and service. And a rich sense of community and fellowship. We need to be together. Not just in study, but in service. And not just in service, but in fellowship. We saw, as we read together, that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread in each other's home. Part of that was the observance of the Lord's Supper. But a lot of it was also just gathering together for a meal. Sharing time together as community. Building relationships with each other and enjoying time together as the people of God. As family. Now it need not necessarily be potlucks, but a lunch together at a restaurant wouldn't hurt occasionally. But having time together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And they also went out of their way to make themselves into living exhibitions of God's love and charity before others. Because no one will believe that Christ makes a difference. No one will believe that Jesus transforms lives. No one will believe that the Word of God has any merit if they don't see it lived out in you. For they will know you are my disciples if you what? If you love one another. Rebuking not the gathering of yourselves together or as some are in the habit of doing, but all the more so as you see the day of the Lord approaching. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. After his regeneration, the disciple Peter, now turned the apostle Peter, now turned the pastor Peter, is writing in Babylon to Christians all throughout the world, people of the capital C church, instructing them on how to be a Christian in a world that doesn't like Christians. This is where he's opening the last little bit of his instructions. Starting with verse 8, we read, we read, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic and love one another. Be compassionate and humble, even when you're under persecution. Verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but on the contrary, repay evil with what? Blessing. Because of this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Be the same as Christ himself was when he was on the cross. 
when he was being put there, cursed by his own people, nailed by Roman centurions, both pagans and believers, who was the Son of God, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Be for those who hate you the same as Christ was to those who hated him. Not repaying evil for evil, but evil with blessing. This is our conduct. What is the conduct? The conduct is the way that we, is the self that we display before others. It's our actions. It's the way that we present ourselves and we live out our testimony. So as the people of God, Peter is writing that we are to work for the unity of the church, to love each other, even when we have people here who are disagreeable. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 18. If you have an issue with your brother or sister, if one of you are caught in sin, or if you have a disagreement, or if there's animosity, if there's hatred, if there's something that's building up within you, do not let the sun set on your anger, but go directly to that person. Don't talk about them behind their back. Don't drag or triangulate someone else as to be a kind of a mediator yet. But your first step is to go directly to that person and to talk it out and to work it out. To master your anger and master your temptations and master yourself and go to that person as your brother or sister. And if you can work it out together, you've won your brother. But if you can't, then get someone to act as mediator. Someone who's mature in the faith. Someone who is impartial in the faith. Sit down and work it out. And it's only in extreme cases. It's only in that third time that if you need the full counsel of the church, you use the full counsel of the church. But be warned, in this case, Jesus has a three-strike rule. If someone is caught in sin, first you confront them. Second, you ask an elder to accompany you. Third, you do what? You bring them before the church and you counsel together, but always with reconciliation in mind. But you work constantly for the unity of the church. One of the hardest charges for any pastor is to preserve the spirit of unity in the bonds of peace. And sometimes that makes making some hard calls. Sometimes that make, that, that's forced to be confrontational. But not in a disrespectful way, but in a direct way. Loving each other with, a brotherly, with, with not just a brotherly love, but an agape love. The same love that Jesus showed for you, He expects as brothers and sisters in Christ to discipline yourself under His Lordship and exhibit that same kind of love to each other. To care for one another's needs. Be careful how you do that so you don't end up offering someone a type of toxic charity which is going to imprison them in needfulness. But you help them become the person that God has called them to be individually. And also, place others before yourself, the antidote to pride. And in the sight of the world, how are we supposed to act? Meet persecution with kindness the same way that Jesus did. Don't offer a curse, but a blessing. Work for the welfare of all people. That's what we do in tandem with other churches in our ministry alliance and in our denomination. See others as Christ sees them, as a person of eternal significance and divine worth. Because everybody that you meet, no matter what they might look like on the outside, no matter how they may act outwardly, they are made in God's image and they are a potential brother or sister in Christ. And finally, defeat unbelief with Christian love. You're the only Bible that some people will ever read. So let me ask you something. How good is your translation? How well do you live out what you have learned before others? How you live it out 
is going to be the ultimate tract to redemption. If others do not see a difference in the way that you live your life, they're not going to be called to Christ. If others see Jesus in you, be ready because when they ask, then you can share them a truth instead of living a fiction. So we continue. Four, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil. Not just lying and deceit, not just backbiting and slander, but also taking the truth and using it as a weapon to tear someone down. I hate that phrase. Uh, what is it? I just call it like I... I just tell it like it. That's an excuse to hurt somebody that's using the truth as a weapon. Satan does that. Do so if you confront someone. Do so with gentleness and respect. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. Keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace. Underline that. They must seek peace and not just seek it, but pursue it. Not just as a goal, but as an active, <clears throat> as an active journey. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is what? Is against those who do evil. Especially those who claim that the evil that they're doing is in the name of the Lord. But that's another sermon. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, he's couching his terms because he knows that persecution is underway. Even if you should suffer for doing right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Even when the outside is pressing on you, even when the darkness seeks to invade the light, even when the good that you're trying to do comes under fire because of the person in whose name you go, do not fear their threats and do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Underline this. This is the key verse I want you to take. If nothing else, take this verse with you as you go, for it is our challenge for this week and indeed for the extent of our lives. Always be prepared to give an account, to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason of the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and with respect. Not beating someone over the head with the Bible, not using it as a source of persecution and hatred, not slamming somebody against the wall with truth and hopes that you can scare them into heaven, but in presenting God's love, His redemptive plan and the truth, yes, but as a loving parent would instruct their child, not as a schoolyard bully. Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. There's a church that has reluctantly claimed the name of Baptist, even though there's nothing Baptist about them, that you've heard on the news over the past few years, that have done more, done more to harm the Christian message, done more to harm the Baptist family of churches, in their spread of hatred in the name of Christ, instead of love in the name of Christ, than anything that I could think of in recent memory. Do it with gentleness and respect so that when you stand before others and they disrespect you, eventually your pattern of behavior, your conduct, your conversation, your character will not bring shame upon yourself, but will bring shame upon those who slander you.
That's where gentleness and respect comes in. That's where the love of God comes in. That's where putting Christ on display, being an imitation of Christ, being a reflection of His goodness. That's how we share our testimony and conversation, by controlling our tongue, by mastering our emotional state, by being family to each other, and by seeing the outside as brothers and sisters in Christ. So we talk about our conversation. We speak with gentleness and respect to each other. We speak with gentleness and respect, knowing that our words carry weight, but also the way that we phrase those words carries an even greater authority. If we wear Christ on our sleeve, we should act like Him. Two things I want you to gather from that. Number one is His gentleness and His meekness. But number two is His resolve. In gentleness and meekness, He treated others with respect and with dignity unless they rebuked Him and tried to cast dispersion upon Him, and for which He was ready to give an account. He was ready to give a defense. But there's also the fact that at the end of all of his messages, even though he was welcoming, even though he loved people, even though he offered them the chance for repentance, he challenged them at each sermon. He challenged them with the phrase, go and sin no more. The way we are right now is not good enough. But through the power of the Holy Spirit of God in conjunction with the Holy Word of God, We go on that journey called sanctification for which we grow, we get conformed into the image of His Son, and day by day we are sculpted in His likeness. And for those who were sinners, He didn't shy away from pointing out, you're living in sin, but there's a God who's willing to forgive you if you only believe. But belief and repentance are required. Going on, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive with the Spirit. After being made alive, he went and made a proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God awaited patiently in the the days of Noah while he was building the ark, while the ark was being built, excuse me. Only in a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. He's explaining how the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, even though your outside doesn't look like it's been changed, the inside has been completely renovated. It saves you by the, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers all in submission to Him. The outward sign of an inward change. It's the way we define baptism. When we talk about sharing your testimony in your character, again, your conduct and your conversation are the person that you are on the outside. Your character is the truth of the matter on the inside. And a regenerate person is characterized by several things. As a a regenerate Christian, our emotions are supposed to be subject to the Lordship of Christ. Even when we become angry, we remember that Jesus Himself was angry. When we remember that we were sorrowful, we remember that Jesus Himself is known as a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. But all of it was subject to the Father. Our speech is under the Lordship of Christ. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? Do you ever think about that in your conversation? 
Our relationship with others, the way we treat other people, our neighbors, our friends, our family, that all needs to be under his lordship. Paul put it this way, the love of Christ controls us. If you are subject to the Holy Spirit, if you are inspired by him, and if you are under the lordship of Christ, it is the love of Christ which controls us. Because we have concluded this, one man died for all, so all have died. In other words, Jesus died for all of our sins when we were sinners. So if you're in Christ, the sinner is now dead. You of the past is dead. That person you were before Christ is gone. He died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for them who died for his sake and was raised. We are under his lordship. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, a very dear price, the price of the blood of the only begotten Son of God. So from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ himself according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. So everyone, everyone is in God's image. Even the people that don't like you very much. Everyone is a person of eternal significance and divine worth and need to be treated as such. So a professing Christian in their character actively seeks to learn the word of God because it is that word that transforms us. They actively seek new opportunities to apply it to be the volunteers, to be the workers, to be the laborers in the vineyard, to be the evangelists, to be the pastors, to be the teachers, to be the people who do the work behind the scenes so that the church can go on. They actively harbor a need to save the lost. That should burden us. A realization of what awaits the immortal soul of a person outside of the kingdom of God. Right now, it's hard practically to, to picture someone that we love standing before the judgment seat of Christ one day and hearing the very Christ we serve say, depart from me for I never knew you. But Christian, that's what's going to happen. You all have said that you've got somebody in your life, it could be a family member, it could be a neighbor, it could be a coworker, it could be a friend. All of you have said at one point or another that you have someone in your life that doesn't know Christ, that doesn't attend church, that is still lost, that still behaves in a way that would be obnoxious if they were standing before Christ. A lot of you have said that you worry about this person's soul. Do you worry enough about them to save them? You have the life preserver in your hand. They're in the middle of a hurricane. Do you have the strength to put your feet firmly on the deck and throw it at them before it's too late? They are in danger of the fires of hell. They're in danger of hearing the very creator of this universe, the forger of their souls say, Depart from me. You love them enough to call them your friend, to call them your family member. Do you love them enough to give them an account of the hope that is within you? This is the black and white command of Scripture. Always our challenge for this message. Always be prepared to give an account of the hope that is within you through your conduct, the way you behave, your conversation, the very words you say, 
through the character that is the person that you are on the inside. Always be prepared to give an account of the hope that is within you. Only do so with all gentleness and respect. All God's people said. Heavenly Father, make us a people who live the gospel out, who seek to live in subjugation to you as the author and perfecter of our faith, who would be bold in declaring that this world is broken, but we serve a God who has open arms to save those who are willing to repent, those who believe. Help us as we come to you now. For those who have yet to come to know this free pardon of sin, this miraculous work of grace that you have prepared, I ask in this hour you would bring them to your altar, that you would bring them to repentance, that you would bring them to faith before it is everlastingly too late. For our neighbors, for our community that is in the grips of isolation and hopelessness, make of us messengers of your love. Make of us living examples of your hope. And give us the words when the opportunity presents itself, not to slink away in fear, but to be bold enough through love to recall that God loved the world so much that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever would believe on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. As we transition now to the time of invitation, as we dedicate ourselves into your hands, bring forward all who would be saved, bring forward all who need a special touch of your hand, bring forward all so they might know the God who loves them. In the most holy name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share his word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you and God bless you.